0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in
1: to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, November the 13th. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in. On today's show, I will be joined by Attorney General David Eby, who will be responding to Todd Stone, who has concerns about the commitment to BCLC, which, uh, sorry, which the commitment that BCLC has to the city of Kamloops. So he'll be on in about 10 minutes to join me to talk all about that. Uh, To kick off the back half of today's show, I am going to be talking with Dennis McKenzie. He is the founder of Brave and Broken, a support group that helps veterans and first responders with uh, debilitating effects of PTSD. I will also be chatting with uh, Justin Whitehall, who uh, uh, is uh, with uh, Brave, and, or sorry, he is with Veil vale Cannabis Clinic in Ontario, and they are looking to do some research about the uh, connection with cannabis use and whether it can have a positive impact on uh, PTSD. And then to end off today's show, I will be joined by John Schmuel, who is the managing editor of lowestrates.ca. We will be talking about finance, financial literacy and the importance of knowing how to talk money. As the uh, son of an accountant myself, you would think I might know a thing or two when it comes to how to invest and handle the dollars and cents part of life. While I was hanging out with my dad on the weekend, he was trying to explain some things to me, probably for about the 100th time or so that we have had the same conversation. And uh, needless to say, I still don't know what I'm talking about. So we'll uh, have a chat with John Schmuel at around 9.50. So stick around for that. But to begin today's program, I am going to be talking about financial insolvency as it relates to businesses. I am joined now by M&P insolvency professional, Dean Prentice. Dean, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, you're starting to become a bit of a regular here with me. So uh, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I'm
2: glad glad you have an interest in it because a lot of people who have a financial problem, they're... Uh, scared or embarrassed to talk about it. And they don't know who to turn to. And so I think they get a lot of information from, from your station and from your from your program.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think it's important information to get out there like you had mentioned. Um, so w- in our previous chats we've talked kind of about the personal side of things, but this new uh, data that's been released by the uh, Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy talks about the slowing Canadian economy and how it's kind of resulted in the first year-to-year increase in business insolvencies in almost 20 years. A uh, number of businesses that Failed in the past 12 months uh, from September 2018 through September 2019 was up 4.1% compared to the same period as I mentioned in 2018. So um, can you tell me a little bit about what this might be attributed to? Is there, a, is there a particular reason why you can pinpoint businesses are struggling more here in the last year compared to the last two decades prior?
2: Well, certainly there's been the, the advantage of the low interest rates over the last number of years that credit was easier to access. People were able to uh, borrow money to grow their businesses. But certainly in the last little bit with uh, problems with tariffs, problems with mills shutting down, with uh, mining softening, businesses have had a lot more problems trying to attract interest. And I think the interesting part is in British Columbia, the rise year-on-year has actually been over 23% in business insolvencies, bankruptcies, and proposals, which is a remarkable increase over the year.
1: Yeah, I and mean, we're looking at BC specifically, like you mentioned, up over twenty-three percent, almost uh, you know a full twenty-five, one quarter. Um, that obviously doesn't sound very good. I mean, is that just a result of um, you know sort of the the types of businesses that we deal with here in British Columbia?
2: It certainly is. The resource industries are having a tough time. Uh, mining in the in the interior, oil and gas up in the piece, uh, softwood lumber, but the the trend hasn't just started now, uh, there's been an increase that's been going on for the last year. Now, I think it is interesting, though, with businesses compared to personal insolvencies, bankruptcies, uh, business bankruptcies have actually gone down year on year. So more businesses are actually restructuring, doing a proposal, which means that they may not be going out of business, but they're trying to negotiate a settlement with creditors. And I think that's very encouraging because that keeps businesses going and keeps people employed.
1: Okay, um, that's interesting, because I was going to kind of ask about employment numbers as well. I mean, we hear the federal government often talking about, you know, record employment here in Canada, but yet, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, more businesses dealing with insolvency or getting close to to feeling like they're financially insolvent. I guess, you know, those numbers don't seem to make sense if more people are employed, yet uh, more businesses seem to be struggling. But you're saying that um, they almost might be learning from these kind of stats and and finding uh, ways to keep themselves afloat.
2: Right. So the difference between the bankruptcy and the proposal, often in bankruptcy, the business is shut down or it's sold or it's shuttered. Whereas in a proposal, it's an insolvency filing, but it means that businesses are trying to find a way to keep operating and uh, they, they don't go out of business. Now, the other thing is, it's a little bit misleading because most businesses that close don't actually file a bankruptcy or a proposal. Most often, what happens is when a business closes, the owners of the company have got personal guarantees or debts owing to the for taxes that they become personally liable for, and so they're filing a personal bankruptcy or proposal and not not bothering to bankrupt the company. And I think that's part of the reason why we see the business bankruptcies going down a little bit, but personal insolvencies going up.
1: Okay. Um, and, and this isn't uh, completely a, a, a trend across all sectors. I mean, uh, I looked, uh, there was a small uh, increase or, or a, a, you know, improvement, if you will, on things like retail side. Uh, is, that, is that the same situation we're seeing here in B.C.? That's the national trend, but is that the cra- case here in, in British Columbia as well?
2: I don't have the specifics for the retail trade in, in British Columbia. Um, but overall, the retail trade is there's a bit of a time lag from uh, what happens in retail compared to what's happened in industry, because as the industry start to slow down, it, it might be a year later that the retail industry actually feels that it and has the effect. So I think there might be a, perhaps a sense of a little bit of false optimism in the retail trade that bank, retail bankruptcies have actually gone down in the short term.
1: Okay, interesting. So, I guess, what what can we take from this data here to sort of move forward? I mean, obviously, here in BC and and Canada as a whole, we want to see our businesses improve and, and, uh, you know, be uh, financially... Um, you know, positive, I guess, is there anything that we can learn from this moving forward with this particular set of data in terms of, uh, you know, is, is, is there a concern as a whole from a, from a country standpoint that, that more businesses are dealing with insolvency or, or is this just something that we can learn from to improve on moving forward? It's definitely
2: something we can improve on because if you, you may not be seeing a slowdown in your own business right now But I think if you're proactive in saying, what would happen if one of our major customers went out of business? How would that affect our business? What are we doing to protect ourselves? One of the pieces of advice that I'm often trying to encourage businesses to do is to look after their accounts receivable. So they should look at the policy of how do they collect money. It's very difficult if, if you're trying to collect money from a struggling business unless you've got some strong practices in place, you're actually going to have a problem yourself later on. So I think being proactive and looking at what you can do to improve your own business now and perhaps paying down the business debt while you've got it, uh, while while the conditions are best.
1: So I guess that, that Dean, that probably uh, answers this particular question right there, but is that sort of the advice you would give to any business owner at this point, whether they are, uh, you know, financially insolvent at this point or not, or, or if they're even unsure that they should go about finding out and then and sort of making uh, some adjustments accordingly?
2: I think that working with their, uh, their financial professional to look at how their own uh, uh, business is operating, it to understand what the trends are is their accounts receivable is it is it increasing are they collecting less cash are they having a tougher time um, uh, building up their own cash reserves so i think trying to be active now and talking to their own accountant to say what should we be doing what should we be improving on will really help people avoid uh, a, a business insolvency later on
1: well dean i think that pretty much wraps up our time is there anything else you want to throw on the table here before i let you go I think if someone is having
2: a financial difficulty, whether it's personal or business, the most important thing that they do is that they look for a professional who is regulated and uh, trained in the, in the uh, business of helping people get out of debt. And they should first thing they should ask anyone giving financial advice is if they're a member of the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals, because those are the we're the only people who are actually licensed and trained to help people deal with their financial difficulties
1: fantastic dean well thanks so much for coming on i really appreciate you taking the time i think this is very important information and uh, like i said we've uh, had these conversations a few times now and i'm sure we'll have uh, a few more in the future so thanks again and, and we'll talk to you again
2: thanks very much Jeff. take care
1: you as well that was mmp insolvency professional dean prentice coming up after the break i'll be chatting with bc attorney general david eby about bclc and his response to uh, some comments made by mla todd stone yesterday so stick around
0: for that
1: Welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, November 13th. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, There is some concern from some out there that perhaps BCLC isn't as committed to Kamloops as has been previously stated. Yesterday, Kamloops South MLA Todd Stone was on NL Newsday speaking with Brett Manier on this very issue. Uh, Here to respond to some of those comments is BC Attorney General David E.B. David, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So uh, concerns about senior BCLC staff all being in Vancouver, uh, with only interim CFO Tom K currently based in Kamloops. BCLC uh, says that the president and CEO Greg Moore, who's filling in while Jim Lightbody is on a leave of absence, is splitting time between the two cities. But you know, why why do these concerns continue to keep coming up? Do you have any reason why you know these conversations seems to have uh, so ma- so much legs? Well, I mean,
3: I'll certainly acknowledge some frustration about it. I mean, the the previous government reduced the number of Kamloops employees in their term uh, from 2013 to 2017 by 34. Uh, Our government added in those 34 plus two more. So they're back at the highest level of Kamloops employees since 2008 on the numbers that BCLC gave me most recently. And uh, and despite that, and I I think it goes back... um, uh, to be frank, to the decision of government to prioritize uh, building, you know, the, the patient care wing and Kamloops Hospital and schools and other priorities rather than upgrading the B.C. Lottery Corporation headquarters, which was the previous, uh, previous government's priority. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the MLA, uh, Todd Stone, uh, Peter Melibar out there saying, well, oh, this means that government's not committed to Kamloops. Absolutely not true. Uh, we've increased the number of employees at Camloops. The only reason uh, why uh, there there, have been, there has been a significant uh, change at the top at BC Lauder Corporation is because of a very serious illness of uh, Jim Lightbody, um, and uh, he is uh, he is taking time and necessarily so uh, for his health. So I, I do find a little bit of frustration. I understand where it comes from, but it's important for me to come and again and again, uh, and I'm glad to do it. Uh, because I believe it very firmly, uh, put on the record that we are committed to Kamloops, uh, to BC Lottery Corporation being a strong, uh, important corporate cornerstone in Kamloops, and our decisions uh, reflect that.
1: So from that, you're saying this is my interpretation of that is that, you know obviously there's there's some health issues that are being dealt with in the corporation um, and and so in order to fill those positions, some temporary measures have been taken. But uh, you know once everything is sort of back to normal, if you will, so to speak, um, you know that commitment to Camloops will will be easy to see. I guess at that point, once things are kind of up and running the way that they were kind of intended to.
3: Well, it's, it's challenging. So we um, have a situation where the CEO is out on an extended uh, leave for health reasons. Um, and when you have an executive, when you're trying to hire an executive, it's not really ideal to have an interim CEO, which is what we have right now, do all the hiring of an executive team that maybe works for him but may not work for the CEO who's on leave. Uh, so the idea was initially, well, let's, do, uh, let's try to, to uh, carry, carry through Uh, with the staff we have, so that when Jim comes back uh, to his job, he'll be able to set up the team that he needs to succeed at BC Lottery Corporation. Uh, And if his health requires that he needs to take a longer leave than we're currently thinking, uh, then a new CEO could make those decisions and build a team that they need. Uh, The reality has been that we've had to do that temporary fill-in, um, the board has had to make those decisions on temporary fill-in, and now they've actually posted some of the positions because we do need longer-term uh, folks in these roles. They play very critical roles in keeping BC Lottery Corporation on track, and all of the hiring is for people to be working in Kamloops.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask that as well, because uh, there's got to be some sort of almost timeline, you would think, to deal with this. Not that you want to rush anyone's uh, ability to recover from health issues. That's the most important thing in their lives to deal with. But, um, you know, with some of these jobs, it is important to get permanent people in these positions. So to, to sort of be filling them on interim basis, uh, you know, on a, on a steady uh, rolling People, if you will, if you know, people con- continually coming in on an interim basis is probably not ideal. So um, you said that they're starting to see some more permanent hires. Is that uh, uh, going to continue? Are we going to see more of that coming up in the near future, or is this more just a, a move for now? And and we'll look to some of those other senior staff members and, and whether those are going to be permanent fills uh, in a in a more yeah, extended we've, future.
3: We've we've hired an executive. We BC Lottery Corporation has hired an executive search team. Uh, to uh, to recruit candidates to Kamloops to work uh, in in these uh, executive positions at the BC Lottery Corporation uh, because we have had to move to more permanent uh, roles and and uh, again you know I, I thought it important just to come on the radio I listened to Mr Stone's interview and and uh, just want to underline again uh, because it's important I know how important BC Lottery Corporation is to Kamloops uh, and. Uh, just to let folks know. And that there are so many people who know someone who works at BC Lottery Corporation uh, or who has a family member who works there. I know it's an important employer in Kamloops. Um, and to reassure them, because when uh, when the former Minister of Transportation comes on and says, look, the government's thinking about moving out of Kamloops, people worry. They worry about their homes and their jobs and so on, and I want to reassure them uh, that is totally not the case. Just the opposite, in fact.
1: Uh, here with the Attorney General of British Columbia, Mr. David Eby. Um, I want to ask this question as well. What about, uh, there's some rumors out there of the Casino Division and about 300 jobs being moved from uh, BCLC to the regulator of GPEB in Victoria. Um, is there anything you can uh, say to that? Is there any truth to that? What guarantees can you give people?
3: Yeah, the, the regulator, the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch, uh has a very distinct and important role. What we are doing with gaming policy enforcement branch is making them independent of government and giving them the resources they need to tackle a very serious issue that our province faced, uh which is money laundering in our casinos and to prevent uh that issue from coming back and to ensure gaming is done properly in the province. We are increasing our resources at uh, the gaming policy enforcement branch, but it's not at the expense of the BC Lottery Corporation. In fact Uh, We recently announced uh, that we had uh, uh, shifted over the Game Sense Advisors from the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch to the BC Lottery Corporation, just the opposite of of this allegation, that we actually took uh, employees from the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch and put them into the BC Lottery Corporation uh, and uh, had these Game Sense Advisors now at every single casino. These are people who intervene and assist people who are in distress at a casino because they have a gambling addiction problem or they're in some other kind of crisis at a casino. And, and direct them to resources. So, you know, I, I do understand that um, that somebody sent an email uh, that said that this was happening. Um, I don't know anything about it, and I'm the minister responsible. Uh, I do know that we are increasing our resources for the regulator to crack down on money laundering. Um, but uh, as far as I know, uh, and uh, I can assure uh, BC Laundry Corporation folks, that uh, we need them to continue to do their jobs uh and we we are not uh removing 300 people to put them into the regulator
1: uh i have about a minute left here david is there anything that you can uh, add in terms of the whole uh, money laundering investigation that is ongoing is there any update that you can provide with uh where that situation is right now
3: yes we've established a public inquiry into uh money laundering and uh and certainly in uh, bc casinos but more broadly and uh in the economy in british columbia and uh, the goal of this is to get uh, to identify issues and to make recommendations to government in a really transparent way so that people can have confidence in the direction we're heading on this file that we've got under control. Uh, we have a number of reforms that are in place, including in relation to the regulator that I talked about, but also uh, beneficial ownership of, of property registry that will require people to actually declare who owns property. Uh, that will be coming in in the spring. That will be a significant tool for law enforcement. We now have a tool. Or you have to declare who owns companies in british columbia you can't own them anonymously anymore and police and tax authorities can uh can request that information from the registrar um, so there are significant reforms that are underway the public inquiry is just wrapped up sort of a public uh, uh feedback process where they got suggestions from british columbians about what to look at and they will begin uh, their hearings in the spring with witnesses cross examination and what people might be used to in terms of a more formal public inquiry process
1: well, Mr. Eby, thanks so much for coming on with me today. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, hopefully we can uh, catch up again in the future. I really appreciate it. You bet, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was Attorney General David Eby. Coming up after the break, I'll be chatting cannabis and PTSD and the impact on our veterans, so stay tuned for all of that.
0: Radio NL. radionl.com, Local news now. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
1: Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show. It is Wednesday, November 13th. We're now two days removed from Remembrance Day, but that doesn't mean it's time to forget about our veterans. I am joined on the line now by the founder of Brave and Broken, Dennis McKenzie. Dennis, thanks so much for being on here with me.
4: Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff.
1: And I'm also joined on the line by Justin Whitehall, the director of the Avail Cannabis Clinic in Ontario. Justin, thanks for being here as well. Thanks for having us, Jeff. So, the reason I have you both on here with me at the same time, and and we'll sort of get into that in just a couple minutes, but Dennis, first things first, I wanted to ask you just sort of about your connection to veterans in this country and and why this is something you wanted to be involved with.
4: Sure. So, uh, I myself am a veteran. I was in the Canadian military for nine years. I was released in 2013 with PTSD uh, following a tour of Afghanistan in 2007. So for me, it's uh, been a struggle uh, ever since I came home in 2007. And for many, you know, we continue to lose soldiers, uh, you know, almost monthly. And uh, it's just something that's very dear to me. So I, uh, I started this organization to help other veterans and first responders alike to, uh, you know, get, come together and uh, help each other, really, that they're all dealing with the same things because that's really where the help is, is with each other.
1: Yeah, and and I think this is good timing with, like I said, Remembrance Day just a couple of days behind us. I think most people know and understand that that mental health is a serious and growing issue just in general, but those in our armed forces, I mean, it it makes sense that they would experience mental health issues at a higher rate. But um, do you know just sort of how much more of an issue it is compared to the general population? Like, Do you have any idea what the rates are of veterans that are dealing with mental illness when they return from service?
4: Unfortunately, we, we've been getting many different varying reports. Uh, the most recent one um, that I had seen from Veterans Affairs was a couple of years or a year and a half ago. And it was uh, combat veterans in their early 20s were about two and a half times more likely than the average population. And uh, I mean, that's it's really tough to say. That's the best that I had seen, but it's really, those stats aren't there.
1: And, and every year when Remembrance Day comes up, we seem to have the conversation on a national level about the supports and services that are available to veterans once they leave the army. Um, I mean, can you just sort of give a, a quick anecdotal uh, um, portrayal of sort of how the system works? I mean, it seems like it's a really difficult thing for for soldiers to navigate once they are you know uh, no longer employed in the armed forces, once they are uh, returning home from from overseas or or no longer serving. I mean, it just seems like uh, it's a really difficult uh, uh, sector for them to navigate to get mental health or or just sort of health supports in general, but particularly when it comes to mental health?
4: Uh, I mean, all of it in general. I mean, if you spend, I'll use myself as an example, I spent nine years in the military. I went in in my very early 20s. It's essentially going from your parents' basement to the military where everything is a certain way. Everything is lined up a certain way. You know, your life goes a certain way down to your dentist appointments. You're forced to see the dentist once a year. You don't have to worry about your own teeth. Um, When you then come and you're battling mental health, mental illness or mental health issues, and you're now released into essentially an entire new world where you are now responsible 100% for yourself. You're not prepared for that. And The transition from military to civilian life has not been perfected yet in order to uh, really, really aid in that, that the best it could. There are a lot of things that could be changed. There are changes that have been made and things, you know, strides are there, but we're still not there.
1: Uh, now, now, Justin, I, uh, you know, obviously, you're with a, a cannabis corporation here, and and I have you on for a particular reason. So, you were in attendance at Parliament Hill, uh, from what I understand, on Saturday, which was, uh, you know, part in a demonstration here for the Brave and Broken organization. What what was your role in in being there to raise attention to this issue?
5: Yes. Yeah, so, Avail Cannabis Clinics has been recently working with a group of Canadian military veterans that suffer from post traumatic stress disorder. And we felt that it was our responsibility to do what we could to um, raise awareness on the issue and um, provide an actual physical um, demonstration. And it was also a time for us to um, announce how we're honoring these heroes as as an organization by launching, um, well, very shortly we're going to be applying for ethics approval and engaging on a prospective observational study with a primary objective of generating clinical data that supports the development of practical dosing recommendations for vaporized medical cannabis for PTSD-specific symptoms within the military and first responder community. Because to date, Um, much of the evidence to cannabis' efficacy remains anecdotal. And this study involves a renowned psychiatrist from Toronto, and our findings will be published in a medical journal late next year. And um, also these findings will have the potential to help thousands of Canadian military veterans and first responders in the future um, and also provide general practitioners across the country with a recommendation starting point in regards to prescribing cannabis for specific PTSD-related symptoms.
1: Now, Justin, you're going to go about applying for approval to, to basically perform this study. Um, I mean, we're, we're about just over a year into legalization here in Canada. And, and you know, one of the concerns when it comes to, to finding out the the effects that cannabis can have when it comes to mental health issues is, you know, the fact that it has been, uh, you know, illegal, basically, in, in the majority of the world. So it's difficult for people to, to really study the effects of an illegal product on, on uh, you know, mental health issues. But now that we are, uh, you know, a year into legalization, I mean, are we starting to see some of that stigma removed from from the ability to study it? And do you think that uh, moving forward um, here in Canada specifically, we're going to be able to really start to make some headway on this issue and, and really find out what its um, medicinal properties are and that and and how they can help when it comes to mental health issues?
5: Yes, the uh, the legalization of, of cannabis in Canada has definitely uh, well, I would say opened up the the gates in terms of clinical research that is is currently underway and And across the, um, the the world, I would say, um, the, there's many countries that are now uh, involved in in specific studies related to to cannabis, and I, I believe there's a couple of official clinical trials that uh, that have been launched also, and uh, that's what we're hoping our data or evidence will will also lead to, because, um, as you mentioned, to date, um, it is, most of the evidence is unfortunately, anecdotal. Um, due to many of those regulatory roadblocks, um, due to the the legal status of the plant over over the last 50 years, but but there's definitely a lot of a lot of promise for the future.
1: Uh, I'm joined on the phone here by Justin Whitehall, the director of the Avail Cannabis Clinic, and also with Dennis McKenzie, the founder of Brave and Broken. Dennis, I want to ask you about this as well, since uh, you know, looking at a, a clinical trial here. Um, or, or just sort of a study, if you will, I guess, to do more research on the effects of cannabis as it relates to mental health and with and PTSD. What what is your experience when it comes to uh, how veterans are using cannabis? I mean, uh, it's been basically experimental, I guess, at this point in time. We have seen people be um, prescribed cannabis as a way to try to deal with things like their mental health issues and with PTSD. But it's purely just, I guess, speculation that it might work or it might work for certain individuals. So, what are you hearing from people who are, you know, a part of the Brave and Broken organization? are they um interested in finding out more are they just using cannabis as a way to deal with it Uh, not necessarily knowing the the effects or or can you just describe sort of what the relationship is i guess between veterans and cannabis use at this time and and how we want to see it improve moving forward
4: yeah absolutely um i was involved actually quite heavily early on in uh the the uh, pre-legalization i guess the medical side of cannabis when uh the initial clinics were opening up in, in Canada. I spent a couple of years managing a clinic in Prince Edward Island, Charlottetown. I actually opened one here and managed it for a while. And the main goal of that clinic was to help veterans get prescribed with cannabis. So, uh, there are, there's a large population in Prince Edward Island that is using cannabis medically for PTSD with great success. Uh, I myself have been using cannabis since 2015 for my post-traumatic stress. And uh, on the uh, the research aspect that you're talking, I think one main problem that uh, cannabis missed as well besides all the medical research going along with uh, being illegal is also the plant research that happened before that. There was a large era of all plants being studied for a medicinal value, but cannabis missed that one as well. So in that we really know two main compounds, which is THC and CBD of cannabis, but there's a plethora of others that missed study altogether. So I think we're still a ways out yeah, from yeah. that as well. We need to go back to studying the plant entirely. Yeah. That but is uh... as, as as far as veteran use goes, it's, it has been one of the best things to come to the veteran community as, as a whole. It's, um, it's not a wonder drug, nothing is, but it's the best Band-Aid that is out there right now. And to help veterans start working on themselves, this is, this is the best way to start.
1: Now, Justin, you're, you know, looking to go about doing this study to basically prove that what Dennis is saying is in fact true and that it is, you know, the best um, medicine out there to deal with with PTSD. Um, if you were to uh, get approval for this study and, and, and be able to start work on it, uh, I guess, within the next month, I guess, how quickly do you think you could start to see some results? Do you have any idea of what the timelines might look like?
5: Yeah, so we're hoping to publish the results in a medical journal late next year. Um, the protocol, everything has been created, designed. We have the sponsorship on board as well, um, so we've been working on this for for quite some time, and and wanted to launch it on Remembrance Day. So, and and I think another um, very important um, uh, topic is the introduction of of the secondary compound in in can found in the cannabis plant, which is CBD, and. Uh, that compound has not been uh, tested or, or studied very much, so so that's another, um, I would say, section of our um, clinical um, study that we're we're going to be launching is is identifying the specific amount of CBD um, and and which method of consumption is ideal for for these heroes, and and I think a huge benefit here is the CBD. Um, it is non-psychoactive, for example. So we're introduced to a whole new patient population. And um, we're, we're able to to start recruiting um, veterans, for example, that, that may even not want um, any sort of psychoactive effect or, or due to the, the timeline of their condition it may not be uh, the most appropriate medication to introduce. So, so it gives us a whole new realm of... of um, I would say of opportunities to to look at here, which is which is very important. But we could start to see. uh, Well, we will be internally seeing, or in the patients, we'll be able to see results within four weeks of the, the study commencing.
1: Well, unfortunately, guys, that pretty much wraps up our time here. But, Justin, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, joining me and and talking about this study. And I'm sure I'll be following along to see, uh, you know, how things uh, move forward when it comes to this study. Hopefully you get approval and then we can invite you on to to break down the results. So, Justin, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it.
5: Thanks for having us, Jeff. We really appreciate it.
1: And, and Dennis, of course, for you as well. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about the important issue of mental health when it comes to our veterans and, and how we go about dealing with it. And hopefully, uh, you know, some, some better solutions can be found to dealing with mental health issues and, and PTSD specifically. I think it's important work and, and hopefully some uh, good solutions can be found. So, Dennis, thanks so much for coming on.
4: Thank you, Jeff, and I appreciate you bringing, you know, any light to it that you possibly can as well.
1: Fantastic. Well, that was uh, Dennis McKenzie, the founder of Brave and Broken, and Justin Whitehall, the director of the Avail Cannabis Clinic in Ontario. Coming up after the break, I'll be joined by the managing editor editor of lowestrates.ca, John Schmuel, to chat financial literacy. So stick around.
0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. November marks financial literacy month. What is financial literacy. Well, it's defined as the possession of skills and knowledge that allows a person to make informed and effective decisions with all of their financial resources. Does that describe you? Because I know for me, when it comes to my financial literacy, I'm probably reading at a grade eight level, and that might even be generous. I'm saying I'm not a complete idiot, but there's definitely nothing that I should be bragging about. Here to talk about this subject is John Schmuel, the managing editor of lowestrates.ca. John, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So let me start with that question, financial literacy. I mean, do you think enough people fit into the category of being financially literate here in this country?
6: Unfortunately, not at all. Um, We actually did a survey here just uh, last year that asked people 15 basic questions about personal finance, and we found out that the majority had no idea uh, about really simple topics like the difference between, or, or for instance, whether you could get a free checking account Uh, versus having to pay for a checking account every month. Uh, People didn't know that there were free options out there. People didn't know uh, really um, common terms uh, when it comes to mortgages, for instance, like the difference between a mortgage term and a mortgage amortization. Uh, All this stuff left people really confused. A lot of people got it wrong. Um, And these are all things that, you know, as you grow up and, and you go through life, um, you know, you're getting credit cards, you're, you might be getting a mortgage, um, you're, you're buying insurance. And, and it's pretty clear that because this is not on school, a lot of people don't know how it works until they get to the bank and have to have a crash course and make a, a sudden decision, a, a major decision on what to buy.
1: And, and I think this is a, probably a pretty straightforward answer. You kind of touched on it a little bit in there, but I mean, still an important question, I think, to ask, why is it crucial for people to be financially literate? yeah
6: it's it's so important and, and 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 the big reason is because some of the biggest things that happen to us in life like buying our home or buying our first car Involves having to know, has financial literacy, understanding how the product works. Even with a mortgage, right? I mean, there's fixed versus variable interest rates. There's open versus closed mortgages, and you get hit with all these terms as you're, you know, really stressed about. Maybe you're in a bidding war, right? You're about to buy a house. Um, you've been house hunting. You're, 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 you know, you're busy. Uh, you finally think you have the house, and all of a sudden, a mortgage question comes up, and it's like, wait, you're about to make this major decision on a three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar mortgage, and and, and and you have like, you know, this hour to sit down and go over everything and try to digest and make a decision. Um, so, you know, it's it's super important that you're prepared for this beforehand. And and like I said, you know, a, a lot of, you know, depends on the province. Some provinces are making efforts to try to, you know, teach financial literacy in high school, um, but a lot still aren't. And, and that means that students graduate, um, you know, maybe knowing algebra, but they have no idea about credit cards or insurance and mortgages. And
1: then that leaves them vulnerable. Yeah, I, I, in my opinion, think it's absolutely something that should be taught in our schools. Like, uh, I'm not on here saying that science isn't important to learn, but like not everyone's going to become a scientist, but every single person is going to come into contact with some amount of money at some point in time. And not everyone can necessarily afford to have a a money guy to deal with it. So, John, I mean, you know, we've heard pushes for this kind of thing in the past. I mean, you were talking about how there seems to be more of a a willingness to, I guess, at least consider teaching uh, financials in school. I mean, should more kids be learning finances in school? Do you believe that it is something that should be taught in our high school and not left up to people to kind of figure out on their own once they're done?
6: Oh, absolutely. There is no reason that any high school should not be teaching uh, personal finance and teaching kids how to be financially literate because the only people that benefit from that is, is the financial industry, right? Uh, of course, you know, banks and and credit card companies don't want people to be financially literate because, um, you know, you, you can – get them into more debt, they, they'll take on products that necessarily aren't good for them, but might be good for the bank's bottom lines. And now I'm not saying financial, you know, the financial industry out to get people, but they have no incentive to, to have people financially literate. So really it's up to the government to say, this is something important. This is something that we should be teaching in schools. Um, and I think it's hugely valuable. It's one of the most valuable things that kids can come out of school with really having a firm understanding of how to manage money. And that ensures we don't have people, you know, making bad decisions when it comes to debt, drowning in debt and making their financial problems worse.
1: Uh, about a minute left here, John. So that's sort of the, the way to kind of fix this moving forward for people who are in school now and graduating in the near future to learn this kind of skill in school is is going to help when when they do become an adult. But for those who are, you know, living the adult life now uh, and aren't necessarily financially literate, what what is the solution for them? What can they go to do to go about becoming you know better when it comes to their finances?
6: Honestly, there's so many resources online. You really, the first thing you have to do is just get into the mindset. There's this mindset a lot of people fall into that I'm bad with money or, or I, I, you know, money scares me. You have to get rid of that and just say, okay, I'm not bad with money. I just haven't learned about it or I just don't know about it, but I can teach myself. You know, go online, start looking up some of the, 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 the key things that are going on in your life. You know, do you have credit card debt? Go online and see what people are saying about credit card debt, what experts are saying about credit card debt, what you can do. Just take that first plunge and, and that's going to kind of open a huge door to you where you start to become more confident with your money and you're going to make better decisions.
1: Well, John, thank you so much for doing this. Like I said, it is Financial Literacy Month, and it is something that uh, you know probably deserves more than one month's worth of uh, talking about, but at least we talked about it here today. So thanks so much for coming on with me and raising some awareness about this important issue, and and hopefully uh, soon we'll see this being taught in our high schools. John, thanks so much. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Awesome. That was John Schmuel, the Managing Editor of lowestrates.ca, talking financial literacy. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me, and of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed her time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.